You know, I I don't know what your what your well, if I should say if if um, if you're visiting, my name's Nick. I'm the uh, lead pastor here. I, I get the privilege often um, to bring bring you guys God's word, and um, I should say I I, I wanted to, to let you know that. You know, I don't know what your perspective is on um, the pastor. Sometimes, you know, is that is that Dave? Oh, great to see you, man. Cool, you're back. That's awesome. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I tell you what. So sometimes you might think, oh yeah, it's it's kind of my job and it, and it's my gift to like be f- so full that I just come in here every week and just overflow on all of you with just glory. But I'll tell you, there are a lot of times um, where I come in and you guys overflow onto me, you know? Just so thankful to be able to worship with you, to be able to pray alongside you, to be able to seek God together with you uh, is a joy for me. Um, I think I think that perspective, seeing just me as one member among many in this church, um, is straight what you get out of you know First Corinthians twelve and other places. It's just hey, listen, we're in this together. So thank you guys for ministering to me. Um, thank you for coming with expectant hearts and seeking the Lord uh, and inspiring me as well. I really appreciate it. Um, we are going to be in in First Peter this morning. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, some of these. Awesome ushers will bring one by. If you don't own one, as always, you can keep it. It'd be our gift to you. Um, we've been in Luke for a long, long while now. We're going to return there uh, in, uh, let's say, probably six, seven weeks. Um, I, I am preaching this week. Uh, I think it's, yeah, Josh McGuire's up for next week. And then following that, I actually wanted to do a Covenant member series uh, with you guys. And so rather than jump into Luke and then kind of have to pull out again for, you know, six, seven weeks, I opted to bring us into, um, to Peter and just kind of do a standalone message. This message, actually, if you were a part of the search committee that was looking for a pastor, uh, back, uh, you know, a year or so ago, uh, this actually is a message I had preached years prior, and I gave it in an MP3 form to the search committee. So you've heard a modified version of this. Uh, hopefully, I mean, they, I guess they, they chose me, so it couldn't be that bad of a sermon. Uh, but um, I wanted to inject this into the DNA of our church here. Um, really, all it is, I was in the back there looking up, uh, I don't you know, do much alcohol, but uh, I was looking up, what is proof, you know, like what's the highest proof count that there is? And I think it's 200 proof, right? Well, this is, this is 200 proof gospel, this text that I'm going to read us this morning. I just want to bring the gospel unpolluted, uncorrupted, just straight cross coming at us. So if we could go uh, in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, verse 24. So the way the New Testament works, you got the Gospels, Acts, then you move into the Pauline Epistles, uh, and then near the end, closer to Revelation, is where you're going to find uh, Peter's two epistles. We're in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. I'm going to read just the first half, and we're going to call it a day with that, and I'll pray. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Put an exclamation point at the end of that. Let's pray. God, may we never, may we never as a church stray from Calvary's hill, from the cross of our King. The cross may be a stumbling block to many. Foolishness, weakness, a scandal. But to us it is our glory. It is our salvation. It is our redemption. It is our hope. It is our joy. What God would do for us there, what the Son has done for us there, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. So this morning we gather around again and we watch you die and we contemplate the wrath and we contemplate the grace and we contemplate the love that you've had for us. Jesus, I pray, I pray that for people in this room who are here perhaps don't even know you, perhaps think the cross is repugnant, Pulsive. I pray today, God, would you show them the glory? And, and there are some here, probably, Lord, that at one point saw the glory and now just kind of feel like it's just kind of grown used to it. God, I pray that you would awaken us afresh to your grace. I pray that your spirit would be present in this room and there would not be a soul unmoved by the suffering of our Savior for the salvation of his people. I pray you'd help me to communicate, God, and, and uh, would you let me be your mouthpiece, God, in this, in this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So that's it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I don't know what you um, came in here thinking about this morning. But I do know what I hope you leave here thinking about. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. My great prayer is that the cross would captivate our thoughts this afternoon, this evening, this week, and for the rest of our lives, because I do believe that the cross will captivate our thoughts, our affections, for all of eternity. I mean, the heavenly congregation 
is singing songs around the lamb standing as though slain. In other words, the crucified Christ will be our glory forever. This text presents to us the gospel really in capsule form. It's just as distilled as it gets. It's just a few words on a page. It takes a couple seconds to read them. And I fear that, you know, before you even got into it, I was already off and praying. Because we're just, you read it and it's, and it's gone. It's 11 words. That's it. But these 11 words shake at the very foundations of eternity. You understand? I mean, yours and my eternity hang on what this text says here. Whether it's, whether it really happened or it didn't, that matters eternally, infinitely for you and I. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is the gospel, this is our redemption. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. And then the Spirit, as I prayed, I hope, I trust, is in this room to make sure we don't miss it. As I thought about this, um, this is how I approach really every sermon, but in particular, when you come to the stumbling block of the cross and the gospel, you just grow aware of the fact that no one's going to see glory in this unless the Spirit opens eyes. That, that no one's going to fall down and say, Savior! <laughs> what a God! Unless the Spirit comes. If the Spirit doesn't come and open eyes and unstop ears and, 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 and soften hearts, set them afire, then what we'll be doing here this morning will be, for you, likened to like those, those old school, uh, you know, soundless black and white videos back in the day. Which maybe in their day were like, I mean, they were riveting, you know. But now for us with our iPhones and the, you know, modern technology, you see one of those like silent films and the black and white. You're just going, this is, why would anybody watch this? <laughs> What's the deal with that? And some people are, are going to hear this message and go, it's like that for me. But when the Spirit gets involved, when the Spirit comes and opens eyes and opens hearts and open ears, then suddenly there's color, where once it was just black and white. Suddenly there's sound, where once it was just silent. Suddenly you are drawn in. It would be as if my prayer for this morning is that, is that we would almost feel as if we were there Watching him as if as if our story is being written into his for the first time or afresh here this morning, like we're there with our Savior. I'm praying that for you. I'm praying that for me. I I, I want 
But by the end of this sermon, we, we all might be compelled to add our voices to the Roman centurions um, at the end of Matthew's gospel. I don't know if you remember this, but everyone's around the cross, and this guy took part in helping crucify Jesus. And when it's all said and done, while a number of people just thought, man, this guy's just a criminal. The Roman centurion declares with conviction, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four: truly this was the Son of God. When he saw how Jesus died, when he saw what happened around him, he said, no way. This is not just a criminal. This is not just another execution. This is my Savior, and I just witnessed my salvation. That's what I pray happens for us in this room as we get into it. I got a real creative outline for us this morning. Heading number one, he himself. Heading number two, bore our sins. (laughs) Heading number three, in his body. Heading number four, on the tree. So first, he himself. Um, In order to grasp what is being emphasized here, uh, we need to step back a little bit in in the Old Testament and consider the sacrificial system uh, instituted by Yahweh with the people Israel. Um, That this this is being emphasized is actually clear in the the Greek and the English. Uh, Peter wants us to see he himself here. Not just, it could have just said he bore our sins. But um, instead he wants to kind of say it again. He himself bore our sins in his body. Let's say it twice to make sure you get it. And, and if we're going to understand why Peter's emphasizing this, let's go back to the Old Testament for a moment. Consider the sacrificial system. Um, in light of God's unapproachable holiness, which we often forget, We often forget about. (laughs) But in light of God's unapproachable holiness, man's sin called for God's wrath. Okay? That because we are sinners, because He is holy, the appropriate response, the only response, when something polluted stands or, or steps into the presence of perfect, pure light, is death, wrath. There's no way we can be there. So sin calls for wrath, but God is not just holy and He's not just wrathful. He's also merciful and gracious. Therefore, because He wants His people, fallen people, sinners to be with Him, He establishes something, uh, in particular among the people of Israel, the sacrificial system. And so what we see develop, you know, even from Genesis 3 onward with the covering of the animal skins and, you know, you have it with Noah, you have it with Abraham and these guys where they're sacrificing and these things are covering them in essence. Uh, but then it really is established fully in the Levitical system there in Leviticus 1 through 7 under Moses. And what happens, what, what we see is that when a person sins, when a person uh, uh, falls out of favor with God, disobeys God, he is, he is required to bring some sort of a sacrifice 
to the tabernacle or temple, either a bull or a goat, a lamb or two turtle doves or two pigeons or even fine flour, um, depending on really what the person could afford. You bring this to the priest at the tabernacle or the temple. And this thing's going to be your sacrifice. This thing is going to suffer in your place. Now, um, assuming that a person brought an animal, here's, here's how it would go down. Uh, you bring this unblemished animal to the priest. The emphasis is on unblemished because it, the, the, the idea is this animal doesn't deserve to die. You do. <laughs> this thing is spotless. You're not. But God's wrath calls for, calls for death of the sinner. And, and, and so something is going to die in our place because God is gracious. He provides a substitute. Well, here comes this brother who sinned with this animal, brings it to the priest. Priest has him, this individual who's now going to be covered and atoned for, has him put his hands on the animal's head. And while his hands are there, the priest will slit the throat of this animal. And, and there's this kind of transference going on. And this was happening all the time in Israel. I mean, we're, we, we get such a sanitized version of it. Our kind of version of this is the Lord's Supper, which is why, by the way, I would love to do it every week. Because they would do this every day with, with, with burnt offerings and other things. Our version is the Lord's table, His bread, uh, or His body and His blood. Right? Broken for us. Well, this is what they were getting every day with blood literally all over the place. And they're, they're experiencing this kind of transference in the holy court, uh, courtroom of God, where it's like, it's like, wow, this animal now, as I feel its life draining out of it, uh, this animal is dying in my place for my sins. And therefore, um, as it says in Leviticus 4.31, uh, it has made atonement for him. And, and he shall be forgiven. So this animal dying makes atonement and he shall be forgiven. But we know, and the book of Hebrews makes plain, and the unfolding of Revelation in the scriptures makes plain, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. I mean, these things were offered day after day after day. Year after year after year. Hundreds of years. And yet, they were never designed by God to take away sin. They were actually intended by God to be a reminder of sin and a preparation for, a foreshadowing of, a a, a picture of the coming Savior, Messiah, the sacrifice of all sacrifices, who alone could take away sin. Hebrews 9.26 He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Himself. It says John the Baptist declared, and we've looked at it before in, in Luke's Gospel and other places, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's your Lamb. Thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of lambs later, John the Baptist sees the lamb walking towards him. Here is the lamb. Take away the sins of the world. 
those priests would have the sins of Israel symbolically placed upon the animal. And God received it because he's gracious, because he's merciful, because he's preparing them for the coming one, and he accepts their faith in this picture, this type. But Jesus Christ, when he shows up as the the greater priest, the ultimate high priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, he's not going to place sins anywhere else. Not on this or that animal. He's going to take the sins on himself. He himself. This is what's amazing about the gospel. Uh, The priest, on that cross, the priest becomes the sacrifice. He, it's as if he, it's as if he lays himself on the altar. No priest does that, or God does that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Second, he himself bore our sins, bore our sins. I want to consider that now with you for a moment. The idea for this message originally was uh, inspired by something I had read a while back in the book of Numbers. Um, it's in Numbers 11, uh, verses 11 through 17. It's We've been in there actually in recent weeks, so some of these stories might be familiar, but it's where Moses, I mean, so at this point, he's walked with Israel out of out of Egypt, Right? And he's dealt with the grumbling there, and they've grumbled about the food, and they grumbled about the water, and they grumbled about his leadership. Well, then God was merciful and got them through, and they got to Mount Sinai. I think they've been at Mount Sinai now for about a year, and then they're, they're on their way. God says, let's go to the promised land. The Shekinah glory rises up. They're walking out. Let's go now to Canaan. So they're on their way, and the same stuff starts happening. Grumbling about food, grumbling about water, grumbling about Moses' leadership. And they're all, it says, at their tents. I mean, you just picture this. This is, this is what it says in, in Numbers 11. All of Israel was at their tents just weeping. It's going, we miss Egypt, you know? And what is the deal with manna? We're sick of it. And Moses, we're tired of this guy. We want to go back. And Moses says what we all would say, I think, at this point. Listen to this. This is awesome. Moses is just a dude. (laughs) And this would be hard. According to some estimations, there's like two million of these guys uh, in Israel there at this point. Numbers 11, verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. I'm going to keep reading, but do you hear what he's basically saying? 
He's saying, God, this is your problem. These are your people. I didn't call, ask them to come out of Egypt. You did. Why is this my burden now? Kill me. I can't handle it. Listen to God. Listen to our merciful Father here. Verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you. They shall bear the burden of the people with you. So that you may not bear it yourself alone. So Moses is crying out. Moses is crying out. I can't do this. The burden is too much. And God says, okay, I hear you. Let's spread the burden out. And he, and he calls, you know, says Moses, get 70 other elders. Let's do this thing. We'll spread it out. That's why I love my elders. You know, thankful for Ian and Jerry. And pray for God to raise up more. Uh, but I don't have 2 million of you to worry about. So he needed 70 at this point. But God is gracious. God spreads the burden out for him. He says, okay, you don't have to bear this alone. And then we fast forward some 1,500 years. So as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about Jesus and how God doesn't do that for Jesus. <laughs> he himself, he himself bore our sins. He's got a burden, right? Gethsemane. Let's go to Gethsemane. And I want to parallel Moses' experience with Jesus's here. 1,500 years later, Garden of Gethsemane, final week of Jesus' life. It's coming to a close. Takes his disciples with him. Here's what happens. Matthew 26, 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And if you keep reading, you know the story probably, but, but um, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Bible, uh, he, he, he repeats this prayer and <clears throat> this process three times. God, please, I am burdened unto death here. My soul is in anguish here. If there's any way, please remove this cup from me. Not my will. Your will be done. Now, it's, I think, quite easy to see the similarity between Moses' burden in the wilderness and now Jesus' burden in Gethsemane, right? I mean, the the sins of, the, of, of Israel and this people burdening Moses to where he just wants to die. He can't handle it. And now the sins of the world really burdening Jesus. And he, and he says, I, I'm sorrowful unto death here. 
the cross, the shadow of the cross is falling over me. I, I don't know. I don't think I want to do this. God, is there any other way? So we notice the similarity, but it's the disparity between Moses' and Jesus' situation that really is striking. Because where Moses cries out and he receives, God kind of runs to his rescue, let's spread out the burden. When his son, when his son cries to him in Gethsemane, he doesn't hear the father's voice and some promise and, and, and of, of, of easing the burden. No, what Jesus actually hears there in the garden, if I could boil it down to two things, he hears the footsteps of Judas coming to betray him, and he hears the footsteps of his closest friends fleeing out from him. That's what he hears. And he says he gets up off his knees, and there's Judas. Okay, God, thanks for the answer. I guess I have my answer, not my will, but your will be done. The reality is that God cannot disperse of this burden. The closest thing Jesus can do, or our God the Father can do, to dispersing the Son's burden is what we read in Luke. He sends an angel to the Son to strengthen Him. But the angel is sent to strengthen the Son to do what only the Son can do. <laughs> Don't you understand? One man, and one man alone, is commissioned by God to bear the weight, the burden, the sins of the world. It's His alone to carry. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He Himself, now third, bore our sins in His body. He Himself bore our sins in His body. I want to look at that with you for a moment. What does it mean that He bore our sins in his body. Now, many people make a great deal of the physical sufferings of Christ. And rightfully so. I mean, I, it's been said, and I think it's right, that uh, crucifixion is probably if, one of the, if not the most, kind of horrific uh, ways of execution ever invented by man. I mean, it doesn't get more fully destructive than that because it's, it's not only destruct, destructive of the body, it's also destructive even of, of, the, of the, the emotional, the, the soul of the individual because it's like this embarrassment. You're just publicly shamed as you're publicly brutalized and murdered. Um, just naked in front of everybody, laughing and, and, and whatnot. So it's horrible. The physical side of the cross is horrible. But what of the spiritual sufferings? Which I think Peter actually has in mind here most of all. There's a spiritual suffering to the cross that Jesus is going to endure and undergo that um, we might not always be aware of. But, First, let me look at the physical suffering, because certainly in his body uh, can be understood physically. 
It's talking about his body. So look with me for a moment uh, at the man upon the cross. You have the thorns wrenched into his temples, right? You have the blood and the sweat that's kind of running down his face and stinging his eyes. You have the crimson channels of stripes on his back from where they lashed him nearly to the point of death. You have the nails that are holding him in place. And then you watch him kind of suffering and and struggling to breathe, uh, about to asphyxiate, about to suffocate there, it would seem, on the cross. It's typically, from what I hear, how they would die. They would finally, after this long, arduous process, be unable to push up and breathe anymore. The pain would just kill him. He would just die. And on top of all that, you have all these guys around. It's just like the specimen up on a pole for other people to laugh and mock and look at. So the physical suffering is horrific. It is absolutely horrific. I mean, I don't know if you remember watching The Passion of the Christ, but it's it's the reason why it's rated R. I mean, it's brutal. And if, 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 if Jesus, like I've said in the beginning, if we really were to feel like, like we were here, we were at the foot of the cross, like we were there, I'm telling you, we would be losing our breakfast. You know? It, we would be nauseous, we'd be sick to our stomach, we'd have to leave the room. And, uh, and we'd probably also be uncontrollably weeping, just like, what is going on? To my God. What is he doing for me? I mean, the physical suffering is horrific. But the worst reality of all is that which no eye could see. Do you understand? The worst reality of all is where Peter is going in our text. It's this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Hang with me. What I mean is there is something worse. There is something worse than just wounds on his body and lashes and pierces and other things like that. Yours and my sin are there. Our sins are on his body. The sins of all the world are, 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 are on his body while he's there on the cross. The physical suffering he endured is overwhelming. But this is beyond compare. He bore our sins. So what we start to see is that God the Father whose eyes are are too pure to look upon sin with favor, turns on his son in in those moments on the cross. This is where it starts to get worse than just nails and worse than just, you know, lashes. He's becoming sin for us. And as he becomes sin, the father turns against him. There's this moving passage in John's Gospel, uh, John 16, verse 32, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. He's talking about the the, the cross and what's going to come. And Jesus says this to them. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is 
with me. Do you hear that? Okay, disciples, you're all going to leave. But that's fine. I'm not alone. My Father is with me. Well, let me tell you something. The cross, the, the, the climax of the cross is the Father utterly leaves the Son alone. That's what we have when, when the spiritual suffering kind of erupts into the physical world there uh, with that cry from the cross that R.C. Sproul calls the scream of the damned. It's when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? The one who will never leave me alone, even when they all forsook me, is now on the cross as he becomes sin, forsaking the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what R.C. Sproul says. This cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It burst forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned for us. That's hell coming out of the sun in that moment. Do you understand? That, that is the sufferings of the damned, of hell coming out of the Son in that moment. As He becomes sin, the Father turns His face against the Son, and the Son screams in agony. Why have you forsaken me? Our text gives us the answer to Jesus' burning question. God has forsaken you, Jesus, because you bore our sins in your body. On that tree. My sins are there. Your sins are there. That's why. He's dealing. With the father's wrath. Not just physically here. But spiritually. I want to let. Um, Stephen Estes and, and Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, they wrote a powerful book called When God Weeps, um, and I'm going to let them speak to you uh, and help make some sense of this, uh, kind of what it means that Christ bore our sins in his body. I don't think I've ever read a more powerful um, presentation of this, so please, I'd, I'd encourage you, it's a little long, but uh, maybe even close your eyes, maybe even ask God to help you enter in. Um, let me read it. The face that Moses had begged to see, was forbidden to see, was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his own brow. On your back with you, one raises a mallet to sink in the spike. But the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 The victim, Jesus, wills that the soldier live on. 
He grants the warrior's continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm. The sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other growing dread. We move from the physical sufferings now to the spiritual. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly fowl began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this from heaven. The father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned, who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name. Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk, you who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents, who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons. Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing exhortation, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? I wonder, did you identify your sin on that list? 
Would you trace your punishment in his wounds? We often take sin so lightly. We make it so small. It wasn't small in the sun when he became your sin. We make our sin lightly. We take our sin lightly because we take God's holiness lightly. But I'm telling you, what we see here, Jesus takes the full rage that God has against our sin upon himself. This is how this is how you and I are atoned for. This is how you and I are forgiven. This is how you and I, you and I get back to God. Get put back together. This is the stuff here, I don't know if you noticed in the list, it's 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 all over the news. All the wicked people in the world killing children and, 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 and usurping authorities and raping and, and trafficking and all this stuff. You want to know why? How you and I can go across the world or across the street and say to the pedophile or whoever it is, the murderer behind the, 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 the prison cell, that salvation is here, that they can be made right, they can be forgiven. You want to know how that happens? Because Jesus took everything they ever did, everything you and I ever did, upon Himself on the cross, and He drank down the foaming cup of God's wrath so that the cup of fellowship could be passed to us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Fourth, on the tree. This is where we're going to close. On the tree. All of this, of course, takes place upon the cross, which Peter refers to here as the tree. To be hung on a tree, um, according to the Old Testament, was to be cursed by God, let me read you this from Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. This is in the Mosaic legislation there. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, I wonder if you heard that. I read it quickly, but, but the, the implication is profound. What, what God is really saying here is, okay, yes, criminals, you're going to hang them on a tree. But here's what I really care about. Make sure that when you hang them on that tree, you don't leave them there. You've got to take them down and bury them right away. Because let me tell you something. That man is so filthy and my curse is so heavy upon him that if he is left there, there's going to be like filth. It's going to pollute the land around him. So get him down and get him in the grave. I don't even want to see him. And you think, man, this is what Jesus is doing for us. This is what he's becoming for us on the cross. The criminal being condemned for our sin. And this is why they're like, we got to get him down and get him in the tomb. As if he were going to bring pollution to the land. No, no, no. This is the most amazing part about the gospel. God takes, God takes the place of his curse, the tree, 
He flips it on its head and makes it the place of his blessing. Does he not? So that from this dead man, especially in his resurrection now, blessing starts to move forward, not pollution. He takes the curse and gives us blessing. This is Galatians 3, verses 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The place of curse becomes the place of blessing. This is why Martin Luther would later call the cross, uh, we say he, he would explain what, what's happening on the cross as, as the great exchange. The great exchange. I mean, think about this with me. Think about what's being exchanged. It's great for us. Not so great for Jesus. It's not a good deal for Jesus. But here's the exchange. On the cross, he bore my sin. So that in Him, I might, I might have His righteousness. Perfection. I might become the apple of the Father's eye. On the cross, He was condemned so that in Him, I might be justified. On the cross, He was punished so that in Him, I might be rewarded. He was wounded so that I might be healed. He was aborted. So that I might be adopted. He was killed so that I might live forevermore. He endured God's wrath so that I might enjoy God's love. He screamed out with the scream of the damned so that I could enter into the new heavens and earth and sing the song of the redeemed. I mean, this is the great exchange. My sin on his back, his righteousness mine forever. What he enjoyed with the Father now is available to us. It's amazing. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's no wonder that the cross is the centerpiece of all that is Christianity. Now, I'm going to close by reading our text one more time, but this time I want to read it, uh, continue reading um, through verse 25 to kind of get the full constellation of Peter's thought. First Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, it's in kind of what follows our text that Peter gives the ultimate aim of the cross. And that's where I want to leave us this morning. There's a lot I could say about what follows, but if I were to sum it up, it would, I would sum it up like this. The great exchange of the cross has as its goal the great reunion of God and man. 
So what we see is we were straying. We were straying. We were off somewhere out here. And God puts forward his son to die on the cross to say, get us back. Come home. What are you doing? Running off like madmen from the one who made you, can sustain you, is ready to save you and take you to glory. We were straying. And by way of the cross, God reaches his little shepherd's hook back in and pulls us back. Peter puts it even clearer later in this letter, 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The great exchange has as its aim the great reunion. It's the most amazing part about it. We wanted him out of our lives forever. That's why we killed him. He wants us in his life, so to speak, forever. That's why he let us kill him. He comes to save his enemies, you guys. Let me let me ask you, where are you with God this morning? If the point of the cross is to bring us back to God, where are you with God this morning? Are you hiding Are you running? Are you struggling? Are you stumbling? Sins you're holding on to? Things you're really doubting about his character? Other stuff you're trusting in? This crazy thing about Christians, even though the cross is the centerpiece of all that is Christianity, we still kind of pretend like we're not sinners when we get around each other sometimes, right? It's just kind of sadly true. Like we get together and we can ask, how are you? Good. Great. I don't know if that's actually biblical. I, I think we're still dealing with a lot of stuff. I won't be great, so to speak, until glory. And yet we, 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 we are scared to say this sort of stuff. And yet the cross, here's what the cross says. It's amazing. The cross says, number one, you're not fooling anybody. Jesus had to die because you are a sinner. So so stop trying to hide it. If we're people that revel in the cross, let's own it. I'm struggling. I'm running away from God. I need help. Cross says, you're not fooling anybody. Cross also says, on the flip side of that, you don't need to fool anybody. You don't need to put up a, 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 a front because this is a safe place. Not only do we know you're a sinner, but we also know because of the cross that, that God is a great Savior, that He's gracious. Jesus died for our sins. So not only do you, do you not have to hide your sin and pretend, you know, but you can actually come out and say, hey, here I am, this is me. And you know that you're going to receive acceptance from Him. That's why He died. So I'd encourage you in, in the time that follows here, do business with the Lord and even with one another. We're going to have home groups available on the side or some of our home groups available on the side to pray for you in the first couple songs. Take advantage of that. Uh, we're going to be singing, I think, four songs or so to the Lord. Do business with Him. Come back to Him in the ways that you're wandering through the cross. Do it in light of the cross. Know not only that He knows you're a sinner, but also that He's ready to forgive your sins. Okay? Let's pray. God, we can't even come close. Words can't come close. Words can't come close to understanding what you've done for us. We do our best. 
We pray the Holy Spirit uh, opens our eyes further. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing our sins in your body on the tree. We worship you for it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.